0: My brothers and sisters, today I have a, a prepared text I was going to and I am going to speak about uh, and give the second of the two installments of my homily on Humanae Vitae uh, in light of the 50th anniversary of this document. I gave the first one last month I was planning and I will give it today. Uh, before I get into the text of the homily, though, I have to say, share with you just some thoughts from my heart, you know, it's it's difficult for me um, in light of all of the negative news that we're getting about the clergy, uh, terrible, terrible news, you know, to really to stand up here and to speak, uh, about issues of sexual morality, you know, um, and I said this in my assumption homily, how can I as, as clergy, you know, talk about this stuff with the laity when the clergy don't have their act together? It's a, it's a horrible situation. And, uh, what I really want to make it, make clear to everybody from the bottom of my heart that if I speak about some of these kind of delicate topics, it's, it's not a, I'm not trying to be strict or mean or condemnatory, but the, the purpose is that the teaching of the church in this regard, and I believe it in the, to the depths of my soul, is life-giving. It's so positive and so beautiful.
1: And uh, in my, you know, short 41 years of, of life on this earth,
0: I have had the privilege and the pleasure of knowing so many people, both single people, both consecrated celibates and married people and, and, and family people who live up to the very high demands of the gospel in the area of sexual morality and the kind of flourishing uh, peace that they experience is so awesome. The man or the woman who who lives to the best of their ability according to their conscience trying to, to follow the Lord in this difficult area, they have a piece of conscience that cannot be taken away. It gives them such a stability in life and it's a beautiful thing. So when I speak about these things today, uh, with you my brothers and sisters, this is not, uh, supposed to be a negative thing, but it's really, it's a chance to give life. Jesus, as Peter says in our gospel, he has the words of life. So here's my the, the homily here I've prepared. Last month, if you'll recall, in honor of the 50th anniversary of this, this important uh, document from the Church of Humane Vitae, I spoke about how Pope Paul VI, he made predictions about the negative consequences that a widespread use of contraception would have on society and on individuals. And then 50 years later, here we are, we can look back and we can see that the predictions have, in fact, come true. And the main point of the homily uh, that I did last month was that if Pope Paul VI was right about the consequences of contraception, it would only stand to reason he was right about contraception itself. And the Church's stance on this issue is not crazy, It's it's a well-reasoned position grounded in a deep concern for the welfare of the human person. Today I'd like to address this issue once again, but I'll do so from a more positive perspective. Last month there was lots of talk about negative consequences. Today I'll focus on the positive vision of conjugal love or marital love. Okay, Conjugal love is just a fancy term for marital love. Uh, The positive vision of conjugal love that's presupposed by the church's stance on contraception. In our scripture readings this morning, we see conjugal love highlighted quite clearly. St. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her. The love that Jesus had for the church is the love that brought him to the cross. It is the same love that we celebrate every Mass at the Eucharist. And it's the same kind of love that a man should have for his wife, a love that gives of oneself completely and totally. And uh, we can look to our gospel as well, and we see the flip side of this love. So in in Ephesians, we see the love of Christ for the church, and I think in our gospel, we see the love of the church for Christ. St. Peter speaks on behalf of the church, and he says to Jesus, Master, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The church here is, as it were, saying to Jesus, there is no one else. You are the only one. I will follow you wherever you go and be faithful to you always. I give back to you completely the love you have given to me. The bridegroom loves the bride with the totality of his life, even to the point of dying for her. And then the bride, in turn, gives this love back to the bridegroom in the most complete way. This exchange of love has to do with Christ and the church, but it's also what the sacrament of matrimony is all about. Well, so how does this very beautiful vision of marital love, how does this all tie into the issue of contraception? Well, believe it or not, it's a very important issue. Here is the key has to do with the relationship with the body and the soul. What is the nature of the relationship between the, the human body and the human soul? It sounds like kind of a strange, obscure issue, but it's really actually at root in at this whole issue. So, in our contemporary culture, the dominant way, the prevalent uh, mindsets, the dominant way of thinking is that the body is something very separate from the soul or the true self. Um, oftentimes in the contemporary culture, the word soul is not even used, but there's still a sense of a kind of an, an ego or a self. This is my free choice. This is what I, as a person, you know, we have a sense of a kind of an identity. And uh, what is the relationship between that self-identity and the body? Uh, on the one hand, when it comes to things like health and fitness and beauty, our contemporary culture tends to glorify and almost worship the body. But strangely enough, when it comes to questions surrounding sexual morality, the body is often looked at as something of real no, no great importance. It's more like a piece of property, almost like an inanimate piece of property, that we do with as we want. So there's this all this big emphasis on choice and rights. It's my rights, it's my body, I do with it what I want. So that's the kind of mindset. It's like as if your body is like your personal property. Alright? Uh but this is very different than the traditional Christian understanding of the relationship between the body and the soul, which has always held that the body and the soul are so closely united that the body is basically an extension, a direct extension of the soul. So what you do to the body, you do to the soul. Okay, that's the Christian way of understanding the human person. So if this is true, we begin to see how contraception is not an indifferent matter, a matter left up to a cho- our choice, but it's something very consequential when it comes to conjugal love. If conjugal love, following the pattern of Christ's love for the church, is about a total gift of our spiritual self and if our body is a direct extension of our spiritual self, then when we engage in contraceptive acts with our bodies, something of great consequence happens in the realm of the soul, in the realm of the spirit. Conjugal love as a total gift of self is impaired, it's damaged, because The marital act itself is impaired with the use of contraception. Again, what we do with our body, we do with our soul. And it's because contraception is a withholding from our spouse of one of the most noble and precious aspects of our body, that is, our fertility, because it's a withholding of this great bodily good, it's also a withholding from our spouse in the realm of the soul. Okay, uh, It's contrary to conjugal love. And wanting it to be otherwise does not change this reality. Regardless of intentions, regardless of beliefs, regardless of wishes, our soul is deeply beholden to our body. And we frustrate the bodily structure of the marital act at the peril of the soul. So here's another reason Okay, uh, contraception is contrary to conjugal love. While the body is, in fact, a direct extension of the soul, the soul cannot be reduced to the body. The soul is a spiritual reality, and it's not the product of any material process, any merely material process or event. So, for example, just hypothetically speaking, say our bodies are the products of some sort of evolutionary process, okay? Our souls could never have been produced through evolution. It's not possible. Our souls are immaterial spiritual realities. So where did the human soul come from? God directly created it. Every time a human being is conceived, God himself intervenes to create from nothing A new, completely unique, spiritual soul. Wow, that is incredible. And that's why the vocation to marriage and parenthood is so amazing. It's nothing less than a calling to cooperate with God in the creation of a new soul. So the marital act is not just spiritual because it involves the the joining of the two souls of the spouses... But it's spiritual because it has the potential to create a new soul. The marital embrace is, as it were, sacred ground that belongs to the Creator. So it's not all about my rights and so forth and so on. What we're talking about here is we are stewards, managers, of an amazing responsibility that's been given to us by God. We're not ultimate masters Uh, In this sphere, it belongs to God in a very special way. So, looked at this way, contraception appears presumptuous and irreverent. An intrusion into a sphere that is holy and that belongs to God in a very special way. Considering all of this, one can understand why the church promotes what is called natural family planning, or NFP for short. NFP can, in fact, be called birth control but it is a birth control that is very different than contraception. So it's a little bit of a misnomer, oh yeah, Catholic Church is against birth control. Not necessarily, you have to understand and define your terms correctly. So like contraception, NFP is based on science and it uses technology, but unlike contraception, NFP does not interfere with conception and it does not alter at the bodily level the nature of the marital embrace. Rather, NFP uses science and technology to detect and to track the signs of the wife's fertility. And with that knowledge, the spouses can conceive more easily or for serious medical reasons or financial reasons or psychological reasons, they can practice abstinence at the right time to avoid conceiving. So that's that's how it works. NFP requires knowledge and effort. It improves sensitivity and communication between the spouses. It fosters in them a reverence for each other's bodies and for God, the Creator. And if a couple uses it to avoid conception, it also requires sacrifice, and self-denial. But it therefore builds character. It ennobles those who use it. It is in alignment with Christ's call to embrace the cross. And the way of the cross is the way of love. So NFP is a special way of living out St. Paul's injunction, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the Church and handed himself over for her. In conclusion, my brothers and sisters, as in my first homily on this topic, my aim is not to condemn, but to perhaps enlighten and persuade. I hope these thoughts and considerations have changed at least some minds and hearts. For a deeper explanation of the Church's teaching on contraception and NFP, see the racks in the back of the Church. You'll find their pamphlets, uh, more copies of Humanae Vitae, and a short, very well-written book called Contraception and Catholicism, What the Church Teaches and Why by Angela Franks. I encourage you to check out this material and educate yourself more deeply on this important matter.